Good morning. Good to see you this morning. We are in Acts chapter 3 today. If you want to be turning there in your Bibles or on your devices, also in the uh, worship guide and bulletin, we've got the scripture text printed out uh, on the sheet there of notes for you to text along with us. We're actually going to back up, even though we're in Acts 3, we're going to back up just a few verses to the end of chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 42, just because this last little section is such a great description of what the early church looked like as it was first being born and the Spirit was building the church initially, and we didn't really get to spend any time on these verses last week, and so I want to make sure I grabbed them again this week, and then we'll go through uh, 4-4 just to get a good section that ends in the right spot, it felt like. So 242 through 44, but mainly focusing on chapter 3 today. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask God to do what only He can do during this time, that His Spirit would be the master teacher, that He would be the one teaching spiritual truths with spiritual words and working in our hearts and building His church the way that we need Him to. And then I'm going to read this section starting in Acts 2:42, and I'm going to be asking you to, just to be listening. What does this teach us about God? who God is, how he works, how he works among his people, his nature, his character, what it teaches us about Father, Son, and Spirit. And then based on that, on what, what God shows us about who he is, then secondarily, what's he saying to us? What's he teaching us about us, about who we are without him, who we are with him, and also what's he saying to our hearts? How's he working in our hearts, challenging us, comforting us, changing us? Uh, and we'll walk through that together. And then I have a few thoughts maybe that I'll get to share too, depending on how the whole conversation goes. But let's pray right now. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity and the grace to study your word together as your people. Please teach us right now by your Spirit, from your Word, as only you can. Father, we need you to do the gracious and powerful spiritual work that only you can do. We are dependent upon you. We cannot do it apart from you. We can do nothing of spiritual significance apart from you, and we believe that, and we confess that right now, and we ask you in the name of Jesus, pour out your Spirit and your grace to build your church to work in our hearts and make us more and more like Jesus, to bring the life of Jesus, the resurrection life of Jesus, to bear in us and out from us into your world to make you known. Father, we trust you to do this work because of Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection. And so we come to you in Jesus' name right now asking these things. Amen. All right. Acts 2, starting in verse 42. And remember, this is like day one of the church. The Holy Spirit has come on the apostles. They're telling everybody about Jesus, 15 different language groups, hearing in their own language. And, and Luke has just told us that you had about 3,000 people who believed that day and are added to the number of believers. And then this is how he describes what the church looked like after those first 3,000 people came to faith. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. 
and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. All right, we'll stop there for this morning. What stands out to you as we're reading that? What's that teach you about God, secondarily about us? God is all-inspiring. All-inspiring. God is all-inspiring. God inspires all. I was actually thinking about that when I was running this morning. Um, this first section here where it describes what the church looks like. We'll just walk through it since we're already starting on it. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Here's the first thing they say about them, which, you know, the apostles' teaching is what we now have recorded in the New Testament. So this is the Bible. Right, the the, the first mark that he mentions of the, the very earliest church, like the church is born by the Spirit, and these first believers devote themselves to the truth of the Bible that the apostles are teaching, the truth about Jesus, this message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And notice that it's not just they showed up and listened every now and then, or they learned what they said, or they memorized what they said, but it's they devoted themselves. Like they gave them, this teaching started to define them. It's what their lives were about. They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. So the result of this gospel truth about Jesus that the apostles were teaching them, when they devoted themselves to gospel truth, the result was that they started to live out gospel relationships with one another, that, that they were in community together, doing life together, and Two of the things that looked like the breaking of bread here, that could mean that they're eating together in their homes, but 
This word, the the in front of it, a lot of times makes you think that it's the Lord's Supper or communion, that they were regularly taking communion together, remembering the, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, and then the prayers that they're praying together. And then we get to the phrase that uh, Chris mentioned, awe came upon every soul. And one of the things I was thinking about is just the way that, that Luke describes worship for them here. When they're praising God, it's because they're in awe of God. And what a contrast that is for us. I think a challenge for our hearts to say that the reason they were worshiping God was because they were in awe of God. It was who God is, the things that they were seeing and learning and believing about God and their awe of God that was prompting worship from them. And how often we, if we're not careful, again, our church culture, we reduce worship to I'm in awe of the emotions that you make me feel when you sing that song. I'm in awe that you do things the way that I'm used to them. You know, I come in, I expect this certain routine, and it's going to go this way, and you're going to do this type of music, and you're going to do it at this time. And I respond to all that, but I don't actually respond to God. I respond to how good the performance is. I respond to how emotional it makes me feel. I respond to the nostalgia of it, or I respond to the energy of it, but I'm not in awe of God. And do you see the God-centeredness of this right here? That everything that's going on here, that, that God is revealing himself through his word and the apostles' teaching. God is building his people. God is reminding his people of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. These people are knowing how dependent they are on God, so they're praying to God, and they're in awe of God, and worship grows out of that. That, that you could really say, as far as this first piece here, that when you are in awe of God, you will worship, period. <laughs> You won't need the external stuff to trigger that. He's the one triggering that. And if you aren't in awe of God, like all the external stuff can line up and you can sing real passionately once a week and you may not be worshiping God. You may be worshiping an experience, a moment, an emotion, a performance. Um, but just awe came upon every soul. The apostles are doing these miraculous things that are demonstrating the truth of what they're saying. Like God is giving them the authority to show, yet the things they're teaching, this is true. The things they're saying about Jesus, this is true. They really are my called apostles, building my church. All who believed were together and had all things in common. We see again here the building of gospel relationships, that the gospel is changing how they interact with one another, relate to one another, love one another, and that the gospel is producing a massive generosity here. Everything I have is yours. Nothing is my own. All they were selling all their possessions, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so this generosity of whatever I have, if you need it, it's here for you. Day by day, attending the temple together. Notice this. Here's a large group gathering. And breaking bread in their homes. Here's a small group. And they're doing this really, really often, regularly, doing life together. You know, like corporate teaching with the apostles in the temple, but then also saying, that's not, that's not enough. Like we've got to live life together, day in and day out. We have to have these type of relationships with one another. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And again, notice the praising God, the worship grows out of something going on in their hearts. Right? They're glad in their hearts. Grace is producing generosity in their hearts, and praise grows out of that. And having favor with all the people, and then even after all that, I do love the way that it ends here, that this isn't a prescription of, okay, go and do all this stuff, and you'll be able to make the church grow. Like, hey, if you'll follow this formula, institute this stuff in your programming, and then the church will grow. It's, no, the Lord, Jesus, added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. All of this that was, you know, I underlined the whole thing, but all of this was expressions of dependence on Jesus, right? We want Jesus. We need Jesus. Teach us about Jesus. We're in awe of Jesus. We're dependent on Jesus. We're praying to Jesus. We're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. And in the midst of that faith and dependence on Jesus, Jesus is at work. Jesus is building his church. Jesus is adding. Jesus is drawing. Jesus is multiplying. That is Jesus' work in his people to build his church. All right, Chris, you said one thing, and that's what we got. You're all's turn again. You all go. Oh, 
Jesus is worth far more than silver and gold. The man who's been lame from birth and begs at the temple every day, he thinks he's going to get silver or gold from Peter and John. Peter says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And just as like a really easy to see illustration here of Jesus is worth more. Instead of getting you know, money to buy food for this one day, which is what the man is asking for, he gets Jesus who heals him for the rest of his life, who gives him something. Jesus gives him so much more than even what he's asking for. Jesus is worth so much more than what he's asking for. What else stands out to you? God works through his people. And let's, God, and through, just to see down here in verse 12, this crowd comes to see what's going on. Peter saw it. He addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? Right? He's saying, like, it's, God is working through his people in such a clear and powerful way that the other people who see it, there's this danger that they're going to think that Peter has done it. Like, that is, I mean, make sure you see what has to be going on there. That is how much God is willing to do through his people how much of his power he's willing to share and pour out through his people that when the world sees it, they may think too highly of you <laughs> because of what God's doing through you. Like, it's not like God's stingy with his church and with his people with what he's willing to do through them. He's willing to do such great things through them. There's a danger that they'll get the credit for what God's doing. And so God does work through his people. This is something for us to be thinking about when we're talking about how's God going to build the church in the world and we're saying, you know, that only God can do it. We're completely dependent on God to do it. We can't do it. But that doesn't mean that we just sit here in this room and never do anything. What we believe is that, yeah, God has to do it and the way that he has graciously chosen to do it is through us. And so now we go believing that he's going to do what he said, believing he's going to use us that way, believing he's going to give us what he wants from us and work through us to do what he's promised he's going to do. And so, yeah, it's through his people. You know, it's a great, but it's also, it's still him. You go down here to verse 16. By his name, like why was he healed? By Jesus' name, by faith in his name. His here is Jesus. That's how this man, he, by his name, this man was made strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And so Peter's real adamant, just to emphasize again. Look, yeah, God used us to do this, but God did this. This is the work of Jesus. And again, it's why each of these first three weeks I've said the acts are the acts of Jesus. This is Jesus building his church, Jesus pouring out his spirit, Jesus living through his people, Jesus working through his people. And he even says sit here, like, hey, what, in verse 12, what, what makes you think that we did this? I'll tell you who did this, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the one, this God that you claim to know, the God of our fathers, he did this to glorify Jesus. Like, God works through his people for the glory of Jesus. That's the clearest, maybe the clearest way for you to know that God does not intend for you to do this in your own strength, in your own power, with your own resources, with your own abilities, is the fact that if you do it that way, there's glory for you in that, and that's not what God intends. God intends to glorify, the Father intends to glorify the Son to make the Son known, to exalt the Son. And that means that He has to do the work. He has to be the source so that He gets the glory. And that's why it is so, so dangerous for us to live this religious life 
where we do, in subtle and sneaky ways, depend on our own self-effort and our own self-righteousness, where we are self-sufficient and self-reliant. Because in the middle of all that, all the good stuff that you do is the good stuff that you do. And you get the glory for that. And that means that in the good stuff you do, you are robbing Jesus of the glory he deserves. And so your good stuff has become heinous, satanic sin. I mean, that's what the devil does. Like, he wants the glory that God deserves. He takes for himself glory that belongs to God alone and says, I should be God. And in all of our religious behavior, all of our non-faith produced good works, all the things that we do in our own strength instead of relying on Jesus, that's what we're doing. Building ourselves up, exalting ourselves, making ourselves look good, exerting ourselves. And God's saying, I want to kill that in you. That, that's what you have to die to. That's what has to be crucified. Self, flesh, self-reliance has to die. And this faith in Jesus has to come to life. And the Spirit has to live in you. And He has to be the source. So that when He works through you, when He produces good things in you, now when you look at that, you know it's Him. And he gets the glory. And when other people look and they're confused and they think you're a good person, you tell them the truth and say, hey, don't think this is because we're so righteous. Don't think this is because we're so pious. Because we're not. I'm not. This is because of Jesus. This is the work of Jesus that he would take somebody like, I mean, this, this is Peter. Remember, this is Peter, like 50 days removed from denying Jesus. He's like, don't you dare think that I'm pious. I didn't heal this man. I denied Jesus. That's what I did. I denied him three times. Why is this man healed? Because of Jesus. Because you see Jesus in this. Don't see me. But we can only tell people that if we believe that about us. So yeah, God works through his people for the glory of Jesus. What else stands out to you? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've thought about that a lot this week and tried to think about how to say it. She said, the lame man, sorry, just in case you couldn't hear on the live stream, that the lame man had depended on man for all these years. And then when he meets Peter and John, they help him meet Jesus. And now he's depending on God and he praises God for what God does. And I did think there's something here. Let, let's start out with two groups right now. When, when we read a story like this, I think it's always good practice for us. Like when we ask, what's this teach us about God? You know, that's the starting place. We're going to see things about God. And then when we're asking, what's this teach us about us? I'm going to suggest to you that the best way to interpret the Bible in answer to that question is always find the weakest, neediest, most desperate, or most sinful person you can in the story and assume that's you. Okay? Because, you know, what we tend to do is we tend to read, I do this, we read the stories and whoever the human hero is, like, okay, that's me and that's who I'm supposed to be. So just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a friend about David and Goliath, and I promise this is all connected right here, I'll bring it back around. But we were talking about David and Goliath, and I was just saying, like, I'm not David. Like, I just see now, like, all the ways that I don't trust God that way. All the ways that, that God, because the deal is when you read that story, you realize David is a, a picture, an illustration of Jesus. Like Jesus coming in and rescuing his people. Jesus standing in and fighting the fight that his people can't fight. Jesus doing for his people what they can't do for themselves. And the guy I was talking to, he was like, yeah, he was like, I realized, like, I'm the Israelites. I'm the one scared to death, hiding, not willing to fight, like not doing my job. I'm here. I'm supposed to be one of these soldiers fighting Goliath, and I won't do it. I won't do what I'm supposed to do, and Jesus shows up and does it for me. And that moment of just saying, hey, I'm not David. I'm the cowardly Israelites, unlocks that whole story to realize, and Jesus is David for me. Jesus stands in my place. Jesus fights for me. Jesus rescues me. Jesus does for me what I can't do for myself and what I should have been doing and didn't. Jesus does it all. And so I want to encourage you when you read these stories, be honest about who you really are in them. Be honest, because that's when God's going to teach you stuff about yourself. And so with this, with this lame man, I, I was thinking a lot about my tendency and our tendency so often that when 
when things are wrong, when we have problems, when we need solutions, when we need help, that even in that, that, that our biggest problem is that we're still looking for the wrong solution, that we're still looking for the wrong answers. We're still turning to the wrong sources. And so here he is, and Peter and John are coming by, and this isn't, you know, this isn't day one. Evidently, he's at the temple every day. People bring him there to receive alms every day, and this stuff has been happening. Right? Peter and the apostles have been declaring the gospel. They've been telling who Jesus is. They've been declaring the resurrection. People are coming to faith. You know, we're already at 3,000 plus by the time we get to this story. And so he's probably heard this. But in either case, he turns to Peter and John, and what he thinks the solution is, is give me some silver and gold. Give me something earthly and human to meet this earthly and human need I have today. And he's talking to the people who've been given authority and power from God to give him everything he needs, like spiritually and physically. And he's so willing to settle for something so much less than what God is offering him. And I just wonder, how often is that us? Where God is saying, I want to give you myself. I want you to know me. I want to pour out grace on you. I want to do a work in your life that heals things that you don't even know that you could hope to be healed. And we're just sitting there saying, can I have a few coins today? Just, just give me a few coins. And listen, sometimes, you know, daily bread, it's okay to ask for daily bread. I'm not saying that. But to, to believe the grace and the power of God and to say, I want God more than I want this stuff. Um, and so, so I see that with him, that we see this category of people who need Jesus. And, and Peter and John look at him and they know that he needs Jesus. Like more than he needs money, he needs Jesus. More than money could ever do for him, Jesus can do for him. But then this other category of people, I was thinking about Peter and John, And I think every one of us all the time are in at least one of these two categories, and maybe we're always in both of them. But just if you want to talk about application for us and for our hearts, you know, building off this whole piece right here, you either need Jesus right now or you need to be giving Jesus to somebody. Like those are the two roles that we have in this story. Jesus is the answer. Jesus... If it's you that's broken and hurting, and you, you need Jesus. And Jesus is here for you. Jesus is here for his people. Jesus is here to show himself and make himself known, and show his grace and his mercy and his healing and his restoration. And then if you're in a place where you think, I've got Jesus right now. Like he, it, Peter's restored. He's healed. Like Jesus has taken this denier and turned him into the, the you know, it does stand out to me that the one that most publicly denied Jesus is also the one now who's most publicly speaking about Jesus. I got all of them that he could pick. And so Peter's, but what does Peter do? Okay, I, I have received this from Jesus. Now, how do I give this to, to people? This guy's not even asking for it, and I'm going to give it to him anyway. Like, I know what he needs because I know what it's like to be him. So you need Jesus or you need to be giving people to Jesus, and most of the time it's both for all of us. Like, this, this is the picture of the church. Like, come if you need Jesus. And come and get Jesus because then you need to be giving people to Jesus. What else stands out to you? Okay. Verses 18 through 21 is what he said. Go ahead. Yes. All right. So God speaks through his word about Jesus. God tells us we must live by faith 
Jesus. Faith looks like a life of repentance, and then you use the word renovation. And renovation. That our sins may be forgiven. You're good. Go on. Await in hope. Yep. All right. For his renewed kingdom and restoration. I'm going to go ahead and add this because it stood out to me of all things. Yep. All right. This section actually stood out to me too. Um, and you just saved me a lot of time. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but the first thing that stood out to me when we start right here, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, and so again, this is a reference to the Old Testament, which you know, at this moment in time is the whole Bible. Right? The, the church is just being born. The apostles are just starting to teach that the things that they write and record that becomes the New Testament are about to be happening. And so, so far, the Old Testament is the whole Bible they have, and just notice that what God foretold by the mouth of his prophets was about Jesus. The, the, the thought was, when you go to the Old Testament, when you read the prophets, when you read the Bible, you should be seeing truth about Jesus. When we ask, what's this teach us about God? This is the way that Peter, day four or whatever it is with the church, like very beginning of the church is saying, here's what I see when I read the Old Testament. Here's what you should see when you read the Bible. Truth about God. Truth about God the Son. Truth about what the Father has promised to do through his Messiah when he sent. So the, the prophets are about Jesus. He's going to send Jesus. You know, Jesus is in heaven right now. He's going to send him for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So again, all this stuff that God said in the prophets, he's doing through Jesus. And then he goes back, he says, okay, so just in case you think it's not, not enough to talk about the prophets, let's go back to the very beginning. Moses, in these first five books of the Bible, when Moses speaks, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. So Moses is talking about Jesus. And then, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, which that would be, you know, we get Moses is finished, you've got Joshua and Judges, and then Samuel's the next one. So from Samuel on, which gets you all the way to the end of the Old Testament, all of them, all those who came after him, proclaimed these days. Like this, they're saying, this is what they were all talking about. The whole Bible has been talking about Jesus and what God promises in Jesus and what God is doing in Jesus and what God's still going to do in the future in Jesus. Like, it, it isn't just a Bible study method to say, let's ask what this teaches us about God. It is the way the Bible tells us to study the Bible. Like, it is what the Bible tells us to see. When you read the Old Testament, you should see Jesus. You should see the work of God in Jesus. You should see the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus. If we don't see that, we're missing what God intends for us to see in the Bible. If you get all kinds of history about ancient Israel and all sorts of facts about the reign of King David and, and all sorts of interesting cultural insights, not that that stuff can't help you study the Bible, but if that's what you get, that's not Bible study. Now, that's a history lesson. That's, a, that's an academic exercise. Do you know God more? Do you see Jesus in the truth of his word? Are your eyes being opened to who he is? Is your heart being stirred up to believe in him and love him and follow him? And so yeah, all that like God speaks through his word about Jesus. The whole thing's about him. And that's why it is so foundational to ask, what does this teach us about God? If we don't answer that question, we're missing. Listen, we're missing the whole Bible. 
God tells us that we live by faith in the name of Jesus. That, that, that is the whole thing, that when we see these truths, learn these truths, we believe them, we repent and turn back. Like we turn from all the things we talked about a minute ago. We turn from self. We turn from self-reliance. We turn from self-righteousness. We turn from self-effort. We turn from self-sufficiency. And we confess that none of that's been enough and that it's led us into this place of being far from God and that we can never get ourselves out of that place and that self is not good enough, self is not right, and self cannot rescue us. And we repent and we turn from self and all of our sin and we turn to God. And we trust God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And we trust God to give to us what we most desperately need but that we can never get. And we trust that he's done it all in Jesus. And that he's restoring us to ourselves and he's changing us. This word renovation, like making us new. Remaking our lives. Resurrecting us into a new life. And then we have this hope that there's even more coming. That that Jesus, yes, he's ascended to heaven right now, which, which is really, really encouraging because it means that he's got all the authority and power in the universe and he's in this place of authority. Like he really is who he said he was and he's there now overseeing his church, sending his spirit to live in us and accomplish his purposes. But that's still not the end of the story, that there's a time when he's coming back and all these little glimpses and glimmers and, and and hope of restoration that he's given us, all these little experiences where he's done it, a peace here in your heart and a peace in your heart and a peace in my heart and a peace in this church and a peace in the, that he's going to come back and he's going to do it all. And he's going to make it all right forever. And he's going to restore everything the way God intends. That that, and so now we live with that hope. We wait with that hope of the king who's coming back and when he comes back this next time, he's setting up his perfect kingdom forever. What else stands out to you about God? <laughs> God works. <laughs> They're ignorant people. It just tickled me because I get to stand up here and talk <laughs> when God works through ignorant people. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Like Peter's talking, he's like, you didn't know what you were doing. You were ignorant, you were unaware, but you, you didn't realize what you were doing when you killed Jesus. But in your ignorance, God is fulfilling the very prophecies that he had spoken hundreds of years before. Your ignorance, your sin, your foolishness, all of it, all of it, still within God's power and control to bring about his purposes. You, you did not derail the plans and purposes of God with your ignorance. Your ignorance actually served his plans and purposes. That's how strong he is. That's how wise he is. And even more, that's how gracious he is. Because what happens right here is that these ignorant people who crucified Jesus, according to the plan of God, God uses that to do what for them? Right down here at the end. Right here. Five thousand men. What is that? Twenty thousand people now. Like if we assume that the number of men about matches the number of women, and and usually the number of women who respond in faith seems to be more. If we assume children and, and families and households on top of that, I don't know. It's twenty thousand. Just a fair guess. So on this day we go from three thousand to twenty thousand. Seventeen thousand people respond in faith. These are the people who crucified Jesus in their ignorance. And it's not just, it is that God used their ignorance to bring about his plan and his purposes. He did. But he did more than that. God used their ignorance and their sin to bring about his plan and his purposes to save them. <laughs> I 
It's not just that he says, hey, you can't do this for yourself. You're not good enough, so I'll do it for you. It's like he says, I'm going to go a step even further. It's not just that I'm not going to use your good stuff because your good stuff's not good enough. I'm going to take your worst stuff. And that's going to be my grace to you when I use your worst stuff to save you. And for us today, I think one of the applications a lot of times is it is that worst moment in your life. It is that darkest moment that God uses to finally break you of all the self that we've been talking about all morning, to finally get you to the end of yourself, and your worst moment becomes the thing that brings you to faith in Jesus. And I I mean like deeper faith than you have known before, where, where you're saying, yeah, he really is my only hope. Everything I need is found in Jesus and nowhere else and not in myself. And what is your worst moment also becomes God's greatest grace to you to rescue you from yourself, to rescue you from relying on yourself and trusting yourself and depending on yourself. And that's not the way you planned it. You didn't do that to get yourself closer to God. You were ignorant of the whole thing. But it's his grace to us to work through our ignorance, to work through our sin, to work through our failure, to work through our mess and bring us to a place where we now trust Jesus and he changes us. What else do you want to add? Maybe one more thing. All right, good. Yeah, I think there's probably two last things I want to bring to our attention as we prepare to worship together through song. And so let's start with this one. Tyson pointed out that, yeah, we've got 20,000 people, something around there, who are believing now. But look what happens at the same time. The priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees. Let's just point out that these are your really religious people. Everything we've talked about this morning, these are the people who are the most accomplished, humanly speaking, in religious terms. These are the people who've achieved the most, who know the most, learned the most, obeyed the most, looked the most impressive on the outside. They're greatly annoyed. Listen, this is exactly what flesh does. They are greatly annoyed, not about the miracle, but because they're proclaiming the name of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. That this exclusive focus that Peter and John and the apostles have where this is about Jesus. This miracle is about Jesus. It's because of Jesus. He actually did it. It's so that you will know Jesus. Everything in your Bible is about Jesus. Like when they just say Jesus, 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 the religious people are like, shut up. I'm so tired of hearing about Jesus. Tell me how good I am. Tell me what to do. Give me the rules to follow, and I'll do it, and everybody will be impressed with me. That's what's going on right here. Just stop talking to me about Jesus. And you see the difference of you ignorant, sinful people. You now know you're guilty, and you're broken by your sin, and you respond in faith to Jesus. And you religious know-it-alls who think that you have all the answers, you don't want to hear anything about Jesus. And so they arrest Peter and John, put them in custody for the night. But I want you to think about this. Like, really think about what's going on here. Here's the religious response, human opposition to the gospel. Like, the the most powerful religious figures and political figures in Israel opposed to what the apostles are teaching, arrest them and throw them in prison. Like, imagine that's like the end of this service today. That I stand up here and tell you all this stuff and people walk in and arrest me for saying it. and take Like we don't end with a couple of songs. We don't end with a time of prayer. N- nothing like that. N- n- like I get arrested and carried off. I- I'm just thinking that most people are like, 
I don't know about that. Like maybe we need to maybe we need to give a little more thought to this. I don't know if I want to sign up for that. And if that's the way that religious people are responding to this, maybe that's not right. Like you would think that this would really, like if there's ever been a showstopper, this is it, right? Walk in and arrest the preachers. Nobody's responding. Except what happens. They arrest the preachers and 5,000 people believe. 5,000 men. This is because this is the work of God, and nothing can stop it. There is no human power that can stop this. And they don't have to plan like some perfectly planned service of, hey, this is the way it's going to go, and we're going to make sure that every detail works out just right, and we're going to let it build to this crescendo. It's none of this. We're going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to pray for the power of the Spirit to come, and we're going to see people's lives changed in spite of every, all the human obstacles you can imagine, all the worldly problems you can imagine. It does not matter because this is the work of God, and nothing can stop it. I want you to believe that that's who God is. And that this same Spirit is the Spirit that He gives to you and me, that He promises His church in Jesus. This is what He does. This is who He is. Nothing can stop Him. And then there was one other thing that stood out to me. And I think it's a good place to end as we get ready to worship. I talked earlier about these two categories of people, you know, that we need Jesus. We need to give Jesus to somebody, and I, I fully believe those are two categories for us to see, in, see us in. But then there was this other category that stood out to me, and I got to find it for just a second, right here. When Peter first starts preaching to them, he mentions another person here. He says, you delivered Jesus over and denied him in the presence of Pilate when, when Pilate had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. So this was Jesus. This was your opportunity to, to speak and say, Jesus is innocent. Jesus deserves to be free. Jesus has done nothing wrong. And you called for his crucifixion. That, that's the people he's talking to right now, the crowd he's talking to. And he said, and instead of Jesus, the holy and righteous one, you asked for a murder to be released to you. That's Barabbas. I'm going to go back and read those stories. Guilty of insurrection and murder. And I was just thinking about the picture of the gospel we get right here. Of here's Jesus, the holy and righteous one, who has done nothing wrong, who deserves to be free who does not deserve death. And then here's Barabbas, a murderer, guilty, guilty of insurrection, should have been arrested, should be on trial, deserves to die. And even here, even in this moment, you see Jesus taking the place of a guilty person. You see Jesus dying and a murderer going free. You see Jesus dying the death that Barabbas should have died. Jesus taking the place that Barabbas should have been and Jesus taking the punishment that Barabbas deserved. And when you see it, this third category I want to talk about is make sure you know that you are Barabbas. And I am Barabbas. You deserve to die. And Jesus took your place. You were guilty of everything that God would ever say you're guilty of. And Jesus steps down the holy and righteous one, the innocent one, and he dies your death. He dies in your place. That Jesus steps in and takes a punishment that he never deserved and dies a death he never should have died so that you can go free. We're all in that category. And that's who Jesus offers to be for us in our place. And when Peter says, repent and turn back, that's who you're turning back to. A Savior who loves you so much 
So he said, yes, I'll die your death. Yes, I'll take your place. Yes, I'll suffer your punishment. Yes, you're guilty, but you can go free. Because I'll take your guilt. I'll take your shame. I'll take your place. That's who Jesus is. And the one who did that for you, the one who loved you to that extent, when he promises to send his spirit, when he promises to build his church, when he promises to give you everything you need, you can trust him. You can trust him. He already proved it with his life. He proved it with his death. And then he proved it with his resurrection. He's doing everything he promised. He is everything you need. He is worth more than anything the world can ever give you. And I pray that this morning you see him, that you see him a little bit more, that you see Jesus and you love Jesus and you trust Jesus. And I pray that Jesus will keep building his church by the power of his spirit with you and me, with us, that this would be his church for his purposes. And so I'm going to ask you to pray that with me right now. Keith and the worship team are going to come and lead us in a couple more songs as we respond and worship and we praise God. And, and I pray that you will be in awe of who God is, what he does, what he's done for us in Jesus, what he's still doing for his church. So pray with me right now. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you did not hold back what we need the most, but that you have given it all to us in Jesus. Thank you that when you looked at us in our ignorance and our sin, and our foolishness and our weakness and our failure. That in your love you were still drawn to us to rescue us and to save us. And that in your love you said, yes, I'll, I'll put my son in their place. Father, I pray that your love will melt our hearts, that we will truly believe the love of God for us in Jesus, and that you will change our lives with that gospel truth and that gospel power, and you will turn us into your church who's living out gospel relationships, who's making Jesus known. Please, Father, let Jesus be seen through us as you work through us. We ask you and we trust you to do the work that only you can do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.